You know, I've said before that one of the great things that I think are great about riding motorcycles is that there's so much to learn from the technical aspects of the motorcycle itself onto the skills that make us more confident and safer riders. And that's what we're doing today. We've got another one of our Adventure Rider Radio exclusive rider skills segments. And on this one, we've got Bill Dragoo from Dragoo Adventure Rider Training. Bill's going to talk about how to properly ascend and descend a hill. Bill's a top-level trainer. He's got his own unique approach to teaching. He's um, always got that technical side of any question covered, which I really like. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Pavey. Brian Field. Patrick Pedro. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Bay. Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. And now for another Adventure Rider Radio exclusive Rider Skills segments. Rider Skills is an exclusive program we developed here at Adventure Rider Radio designed to give you the tools that can improve your riding skills both on and off-road. Now, of course, these segments are not meant to be a substitute for professional training. These are ideas and concepts that should you choose to try, you're doing so at your own risk. Now, for our Rider Skills today, we have Bill Dragoo from DART, which is Dragoo Adventure Rider Training. Bill is a certified BMW factory-trained off-road instructor. He's also a certified Motorcycle Safety Foundation rider coach. He's a motor journalist. He's also a certified flight instructor, a skydiver, scuba diver. He's competed and won in motocross, cross-country mountain biking, sailboat racing, adventure riding. He's done a lot. Bill's the founder of DART, and he's in Norman, Oklahoma. And on this episode of Rider Skills, we're talking about ascending and descending hills. Bill's going to walk us through one of his DART sessions. I'm Bill Dragoo. I'm with DART, Dragoo Adventure Rider Training. We're based in Norman, Oklahoma. We teach people how to ride big motorcycles in bad places. Bill, welcome back. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be back on the show. Big motorcycles in bad places. I like that. That's that's good. Well, you know, it's funny what uh, a lot of people call bad. Sometimes uh, when we're traveling, we come across a road that, uh, or maybe a road we intend to travel that uh, uh, we're asking for some information about it. And often the locals say, well, that's a really bad road. I can show you a better route. Well, just tell me again about this bad road, because in (laughs) most cases, those are the ones that we want the most. That's exactly what you're looking for at the time. Exactly. Exactly. You've got a, you've got a busy season. You're going to be at all of the Overland Expos? Yes. uh, We have Overland uh, Expo, uh, well, the Mountain West coming up, Overland Expo West, and then Overland Expo East will take us... uh, August, September, and October. And then we have uh, miscellaneous events sprinkled in between. Wayland Wayne weekend out in Ohio. Uh, Turotex Dirt Days. Uh, I believe it's in New Hampshire again this year. So we do have a few events coming up. 
Wow. Yeah, that, that's busy. What, what does somebody have to do to see you to join one of your classes at one of these events? Do they have to sign up in advance or how does it work? Yes, most of them do require advanced registration. There are limited spots available. Um, you know, we try to have enough bandwidth to deal with uh, a few extras. We hate saying no. So we ask people initially to, to register in advance uh, at whatever site is appropriate for the event. And then uh, once they arrive, when we can, we have enough extra staffing that uh, if space permits or if time permits, that we can uh, either add another what we call track, which is just a whole other segment of training, uh, or just to uh, break up a training session into multiple parts. We have enough instructors to do that. We can keep class sizes reasonable and keep people cycling through the exercises. We'll have a link, of course, as we always do, to your website in the show notes. So if someone's interested in, in checking that out, they can go to the show notes and find that there. I, I want to jump back. I, I can't help this. I want to jump back to what you said about big bikes, bad places. Because I've been thinking about this. For some reason, it's been popping my head lately about people talking about adventure bikes. And I think it stems from a discussion I had one day with someone about adventure bikes and, and why they ride them. And it, it, it comes back to that old thing. People will say that um, the reason we take such a big bike like this into the places that we do has to do with, with being able to travel long distances to get there. Is that your idea of it or is there something else? It's part of it, I think, because it's, uh, it's kind of a purist approach, I think, to uh, uh, climb aboard your motorcycle in central Oklahoma and ride to uh, Southern California or to the East Coast or wherever you might be going and just continue on a, a, a degrading <laughs> or improving series of roads, depending on your perspective, uh, without changing mounts, uh, without changing gear, dropping gear or doing anything, just uh, pull off the road and keep going. But, it, but you, you could do this with a 250 as, as oh, well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I wrote a story a while back called Are You a Real Adventure Rider? The story was sparked by Rudy Duran, who was Tiger Woods' first golf coach. And uh, when a man like him asked me, um, Bill, what is adventure riding? What it's all, what's it all about? It caused me to pause and kind of reflect upon that. And, of course, the, the ultimate answer after 2,600 words or so was it's what you feel in your gut and in your heart. And it really doesn't matter as much what you ride. There are those who try to define adventure riding as taking big motorcycles in bad places in short. But really, um, you know, I talked about uh, John Penton, who back in the, uh, the 60s rode a, I believe it was an NSU, uh, I'm trying to remember which motorcycle or cycles he started on, but a little two-stroke 175cc motorcycle. He rode them uh, miles and miles, you know, maybe uh, two or 300 miles to uh, a race, and then he would have his adventure, his race there, and then he would ride it back. And sometimes the adventure was probably more getting to the site on the bike like that than it was uh, the actual competition. And then you see people worldwide ride uh, virtually anything. There's uh, an increasing, uh, um, I guess, uh, it's almost a challenge for people to take smaller and smaller motorcycles uh, on the backcountry discovery routes. uh, little scooter type motorcycles, a Honda Monkey or a, a Grom. Uh, a friend of ours, Forrest Balt, uh, took a, uh, I believe it was a Grom on uh, maybe one or even several of the backcountry discovery routes. Took a beating, him and the bike, but he got it done. So you can't say that wasn't an adventure. 
Well, that's the thing. You know, I often have trouble defining it myself. You know, when I think of, okay, well, why am I riding this bike? It's an 800 CC. It's heavy. It's, it's really unsuited for a lot of the riding that I do when it comes to the dirt. And, and, and I always come back to the same thing. I think it's the challenge. It's the challenge of, of taking something that really isn't ideal for it and sort of getting it through, figuring out ways, building skills, you know, to get it through. And I mean, it seems so lame when I think about it. (laughs) It's really not. It's really not. I mean, who of us has not looked for a challenge in whatever we do? Um, we, we change the rules or we change the parameters to increase the challenge whenever we master something. So if we've done well on a smaller motorcycle or if we find it easy to do certain things on a smaller motorcycle, let's try it on a bigger motorcycle. Mm. Uh, the alternative might be doing it faster on a smaller motorcycle. And I'll tell you, as someone who's been uh, some there and done some of that, um, at a point in life, you don't really want to hit the ground any faster. In fact, you'd rather not hit the ground at all or at least do it slower. One of the things that the bigger motorcycles do for us is they force us to slow down. They enforce a riding style that causes us to pick our way through, to use more technical skill rather than momentum. I give the analogy of a bullet. Uh, I may have mentioned that this on a previous show, but of a, a nine millimeter bullet. Uh, I ask my students sometimes uh, when they're they're trying to go too quickly through a, a, a bit of terrain. Um will this bullet go through this piece of steel? And it might be a, uh, you know, eighth inch or less piece of steel. And most will say, yeah, if it's going fast enough. I mean, that's that's the key point with something like a nine millimeter jacketed lead bullet. If it's going fast enough, it'll, it'll go through that steel. But how does it look whenever you capture it on the other side? Well, it's a mushroom or it's fragmented. And then I can, I suggest taking that same piece of steel, drilling a, 13 millimeter slash half inch hole through it, holding that bullet above the hole, dropping it through, catching it on the other side, holding it up between our index and uh, finger and thumb. Now, how does this bullet look? Well, it's perfect. We could put it back in the, in the weapon and shoot it. So which bullet do you want to be? The one that used velocity to get over, around, through whatever the terrain was? Or do you want to be the bullet that went through by some planning method, uh, some, some, um, engineering of getting it through and of course the latter is usually the answer that they they have big bikes force that they cause Mm -hmm. us to slow down they help us to get through uh with more dexterity whenever we master the skills it's much easier to do that i was going to say the the bullet that's all peened over and and uh, and mashed up that's got a story to tell the other one's kind of boring story But, we usually get our stories. Uh, yeah. Often we hit the sides as we're passing through. Exactly. So. <laughs> no, but I thought you were going to say I thought you were going to say angle because yeah, it'll go through if it's if it's hits dead on. But I, I thought you wanted because I know how technical you are, Bill. So I thought you were going to say turn that on a forty five degree. It's not going through. I thought you were going somewhere else with that. But that's usually my students' job. They always want to want to catch me in my, my in my old web. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Make you look bad with your your own example, right? They at least want to challenge me. So right. I'm Which, challenging them enough. It's fair. Yes. Well, today we're, we're challenging you with hill climbs. Now, I wanted to start off with this. We're, we're talking about how to climb up hills and how to come down the other side. What's the issues that we have to deal with with hills and what sort of special skills? I mean, without getting into all, all of it, we'll, we'll get to that. But I mean, just as an overview, what sort of special skills will we use in those situations? Well, the, the ability to think the ability to process uh, what we see, 
uh, is, a, is a very important part of the skill. Even before we get on the motorcycle, before we choose the motorcycle or we decide if tires are a factor based on terrain and things like that. So when we look at a hill, uh, many times the hill that we see is one that we could climb on a Schwinn bicycle if we have enough run. You know, we could just get a get ahead of steam and go zipping up to the top of it. Um, so we need to do some analysis uh, on what kind of a hill it is, what's on the other side, how tall is it. Uh, you know, uh, I think that's probably the initial part of it. And then we need to decide, uh, based on the amount of speed that we need to get up it, what can we do once we do? Can we stop? Can we turn? Can we reassess, reset, and uh, go back down the other side? Or do we need to reverse and come back down the way that we came? A lot of, lot of considerations before climbing a hill. And really, this is what we do with motorcycles all the time, isn't it? We, we, it has to do with weight transfer. I mean, as you go up the hill, you've got a weight transfer from the front to the back. As you go down the hill, you've got the, the opposite or potentially opposite as if you're applying brakes, but, but those weight transfers, that's something that we use everywhere all the time with motorcycling. It is, uh, it's, you know, in a way it's like flying an airplane. We go from uh, being two dimensional, uh, operators, uh, say as in a, a car where we, we accelerate, we decelerate, we turn left and we turn right. And that's pretty much the, the whole story. But on a motorcycle, we suddenly have this cone of balance that our bodies move within just to help the motorcycle do what it's doing. And then it moves within its own cone of balance or V of balance. It's moving left and right, and it becomes a cone if we start adding the vertical element to it. The front goes up, the front goes down. Sometimes the back goes up. So we're having to balance or counterbalance any time we're moving on that motorcycle, be it accelerating, decelerating, turning, going up or down a hill. Let's start off with uh, maybe definition, uh, cone of balance to begin with. Okay. Well, the way that we define it, um, you know, we ask students to visualize for themselves, uh, let's say um, a, a, one of the giant megaphones that you see at a, at a football game or something that uh, is used to amplify our voice. So picture that cone with the small end seated or, or planted on the seat of the motorcycle and the large end vertical. So we move within that cone, within the realm of that cone. So that could be anywhere in a 360 degree realm, according to, and typically opposite of in a low traction environment, what the motorcycle lean is doing so that the unit motorcycle and rider are maintaining themselves in a balanced condition. So that would be the cone of balance. So that's, that's the area you move in. That's because balance is really just at one point, right? There's only ever one balance point. True. So we have to move within that to achieve balance. Right. Uh, if we are, uh, take that cone away and put a broomstick upright on the motorcycle without the broom. So I don't have any more complications there, Jim. I know you're going to challenge me on that. <laughs> so we've got this, uh, uh, let's make it a pool cue. So we have a pool cue tipped down and we hold that in the palm of our hand. Well, in a, a pristine environment with no wind, uh, stop the earth from rotating and don't breathe, then we can balance that on the palm of our hand and it's going to stay put. But if we want to walk forward, then we predispose the top of that pool cue so that it if it's leaning forward, we must walk forward for it to maintain balance. Conversely, if we're walking forward, it must lean forward for us to maintain balance. And then you can expand that 
to say uphill, downhill, whatever it might be, uh, we have to be able to let that pool cue tilt or lean in a way that that uh, equalizes whatever the motion is. Okay. Now, are, are there, is there any other terms that we need to define before we start? Oh, there probably are. And you're going to ask me to, to think of those. <laughs> you asked me if I was prepared. Well, it's all in my brain. We just got to get a shovel. Okay, well, let's peel in. Let's, let's peel back the onion rather. Let's dig in and see what you've got there because I know there's lots there. So you start off with an exercise called uh, Quadzilla. Is that where we're starting with this? Sure. Yeah. In fact, Quadzilla is, uh, for us, it is uh, four humps. They're approximately, uh, oh, they might be 12 to 15 feet apart. And they're probably 18 inches to 24 inches high. They're not terribly formidable. And I borrowed this term um, uh, from one of our bicycle um, challenges that we had that was much larger, but it was a a really, um, well, it could be a challenging exercise to go through this at speed. You have to match your speed appropriately to get up and over each hill, but not so much, not so much speed that you go over one, leave the ground and case out into the other side. Like whoop-de-doos. Yeah. It's like whoop-de-doos, like four whoop-de-doos. So we call that quadzilla. And this is where we typically start students on hill climbs. Now, I will say that we have already taken them through the early parts of our level two, which is level one and two training is, uh, is all within one two-day course. That early part, the first morning of day two, we've moved from flat work to hills, but the transition, we actually do braking first. So, and it's fairly aggressive braking. Well, in braking, we have some uh, body position to deal with, some instruction on body position so that we are balanced while accelerating before the braking zone, and then we're balanced by leaning back whenever we are actually in the process of braking. So now they've been through this. They've used both front and rear brakes in a, uh, a very controlled and progressive manner, no grab, no stomp. Um, it's just very progressive braking. Now let's put them on Quadzilla. So when they approach the first hill, we ask them to take each hill independently. Don't just look at the whole bunch as you would a set of whoops and go blasting through. Instead, go in a very controlled manner up the first hill. Your body would lean forward as though you're on a rocking horse almost. And then as you come down the backside, or I should say a bucking horse, like a bronc, you'll see the bronc with the head down. The bronc rider is back with his hand in the air. We suggest students keep their hands on the handlebars, but a few of them insist on the hand in the air. But um, yeah, so it's up and down, up and down in a controlled manner, accelerating, feeding the clutch out very gently on the uphill portion, and then squeezing the clutch in somewhat. And on the downhill downhill section, they gradually apply the front and the rear brake together in a way that prevents them from accelerating and swooping down that hill. Instead, their speed is very nearly the same up the hill and down, up the hill and down as they work from one to the next to the next until they've completed Quadzilla. So this is sort of a, a slow motion exercise, all, almost exaggerated, is it? To understand or at least to to demonstrate the body position for the climb and descent? 
Yes, body position and control usage, and we stage instructors and or scouts. Our scouts are assistants to the instructors. Uh, they're usually pretty stout guys, and uh, we stage them in positions where students are likely to lose their balance. So we, we occasionally we have a fall, but they're typically very small, just biffs. So the penalty for failure for completing this exercise well is usually very, very low. So the student can go go through in a low threat environment. They can learn to manage their motorcycle uh, up and down these very very small hills with proper control applica- application and proper body position. This slow, relatively small hills, eighteen to twenty four inches, is nothing really. So that's why I said it's it's more like an exaggerated thing where you're you're uh, demonstrating the your, I guess your understanding of um, the uh, control and body position that you need to make these climbs. So how do you take it from there to a hill? Okay, so we have a hill nearby, and it's many times higher. Uh, it might be um, oh anywhere from 8 to 10 feet, uh, which is enough to be formidable for uh, level 1 and 2 students. And we can make it formidable for anybody in how we approach the hill, what we do on that hill, et cetera. So uh, we, we always demonstrate before you know, we explain, we demonstrate, uh, we ask if there are any questions, and then we allow the students to in- engage the exercise. So we put the students on the side of the hill at a point where they can view easily. After the explanation, we then have uh, an instructor ride up the hill and then down the other side of the hill. And it's usually a straight up, straight down. By straight up, I don't mean vertical hill, but their line is straight. They don't have a lot of turning or anything. So they ride up and over the hill and down the backside. So they simply negotiate the hill, but we point out some specifics. Uh, With DART, we have a mantra that we make easy things hard so that the hard things become easy. Uh, To shorten that, we say we make the hard stuff easy. So we take this hill that you could go up, as I said before, on a Schwinn bicycle with a little bit of speed. We slow it down. We approach the hill. And in the transition area, that is the area that goes, there's another definition for you, I suppose. In the area where we go from flat ground to the slope of the hill, there's that that kind of a rounded slope or, 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 or swoop up there on the hill. So in the transition area, we bear down. So we would weight the foot pegs on the motorcycle. Uh, we simply, we're, we're jouncing or bouncing down on the foot pegs just a little bit. What we're trying to do is apply our weight in a somewhat progressive manner to compress the suspension just as we hit the transition zone. This is a bit of a trials uh, technique. Uh, trials riders on small motorcycles do this along with some control usage things so that they get maximum traction at the point of acceleration. And you're using a natural phenomenon that happens there as well, because your suspension does want to compress already when you're going there. So you're sort of getting on top of that. As your your forward momentum starts to become vertical, the suspension will automatically compress, and then you're jumping on that to compress it even more. This is true. So you're multiplying your resources. Mm-hmm. One resource is the change in uh, from from a horizontal to a vertical. That transition zone creates a natural change. Uh, that that change is increased, or the the amount of f- downforce is increased by speed if all you're doing is rolling. But if you apply pressure to the foot pegs by bending your knees and then extending them. So it's uh, basically like like jumping. It's like the first part of a jump. Mm-hmm. Right there, you add to what is happening naturally with your, your body weight, 
and that applies more downforce on your your driving tire. In particular, it'll apply it to both, but your driving tire gets its fair share, that being your back wheel. And you begin to feed the clutch in, uh, or I should say out, but you're engaging the clutch whenever you let the clutch out with your fingers. So we feed the clutch out, and then we begin the, the climb up the hill, just enough throttle to... Uh, give the clutch what it needs. We're delivering power with the clutch and it's a smooth delivery. Let me, sorry, Bill, let, let me stop you here because yeah, I have sure. a question that, that, that sort of precedes everything that we're going into here. When you described coming up and, and weighting the pegs at the transition zone, before that, you have to choose what your speed is going to be. And this is key for a hill, as we know. How do you choose what speed to go? How do you know how fast to go up that hill? Well, for one, we've demonstrated it. It's easy to go fast enough. Uh, most people want to go fast enough. So what we're trying to do is slow it down so that we're making something that would be easy at speed, a little bit more challenging, and it allows the mind more time to absorb what's transpiring there as we make that hill climb. And experience will ultimately tell you. So we try to create a success first. We show them what the speed looks like, not that everyone can ideally mimic that, but we've also already taught them two significant skills prior to going on the steep part of the hill. One being loose hill starts. That's how to stop on the side of a hill and get going again. And the other one, which is probably significantly more important, is a hill fail recovery. If they don't successfully climb the hill all the way to the top, they know to stop and let the clutch out immediately. It's it's almost as though they touched a hot stove. They, they want that clutch out immediately so that the clutch becomes their parking brake and the motorcycle is less likely to roll back down the hill or to slide back down the hill if all they did was grab the front brake. We're going to take just a short break. I've got a couple of things I want to tell you about, but stay with us because when we come back, we've got more from Bill uh, about going downhills. We also have some uh, instruction for you to go out and do it on your own, some ideas for you to go out and do it on your own. And as well, he has got this thing about the weightless rider he's going to talk about at the end. Stay with us. I was out riding the other day and going as off-road and going at some low speeds with my visor up, as I often do. I wear glasses so that I can flip my visor up at any time. I went through some bugs. They got in my glasses. I pulled them off with my left hand, keeping my right hand on the throttle. Couldn't quite get my glasses back in place, so I had to use my right hand. Now, without thinking, I just moved my thumb over my Atlas throttle lock, clicked engage to hold the throttle on. It's, it's a very slow speed I'm going. Uh, now, mind you, this is off-road, right? So I'm not doing this, you know, I'm not pulling a silly maneuver somewhere. There's no one around. I can see where I'm going. And um, I use my right hand to pull the glasses off, fix it, put it back on. Done. And it, I got to thinking afterwards, I was thinking, there is no other throttle lock that I would ever even attempt that maneuver with. It's only because the Atlas throttle lock is so precise those two buttons that have a strong positive feedback when you press them, it clicks when it engages. It works like a good product should. That's what I always say this about, about products. I love products that blend so well that they become a tool that you don't think, will this work? It's you count on it. You just reach for it because you know it works. That's the Atlas Throttle Lock for me. AtlasThrottleLock.com is their website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. AtlasThrottleLock.com. See and be seen. That's what Cyclops Adventure Sports is all about. 
In fact, when you think of lighting of any kind for motorcycles, you should be looking at Cyclops Adventure Sports. Cyclops was founded and is owned and run by motorcycle riders, so they know what sort of challenges we face as riders, and one of those is being seen on the road by other drivers. And this is sort of a win-win, because when you have uh, proper lighting, excellent lighting on your bike, you not only are seen better, but you can see better. Cyclops has LED plug-and-play lighting for most motorcycles, replacement LED lights, CAN bus plug-and-play systems, all designed specifically for motorcycles. They even have helmet-mounted lights for serious off-roaders, and they've been making lighting for motorcycles since 2002. In fact, if you'd like to hear the story behind Cyclops Adventure Sports, we did an episode on them a few years back. I'm going to put the link to that in the show notes. Now, their website is cyclopsadventuresports.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Cyclopsadventuresports.com. So, okay, so we're, we're in the transition zone before I interrupted you there. And we're, we're now, the way you describe it is we're, we're slowing this down. We're, we're, not, we're not doing the normal speed that we would do. Are we expecting to make it to the top? Oh, yeah. Um, we fully expect to make it to the top. So that's, that's kind of the, the, the trick, if you will, in this whole thing is learning to time and to match your speed to the slope of the hill and your anticipated traction. So that when you get to the top of the hill, you have you you almost float at the top. So we climb the hill, we slow down at the top because we need to assess. We don't want to go willy nilly over the top of the hill, discovering that a bulldozer had just carved the backside off of that hill. So once we have assessed there at the top, we teach the students uh, after the first couple of of times climbing and descending the hill. We teach them to to slow down and pause at the top of the hill, if possible, looking left and right as well as ahead. And then they simply go clutch out down the backside of the hill on the early elements of this exercise. Clutch out allows the motorcycle to have some restraint as it goes down, but it's a very um, um, low-tech, low-skill exercise or drill to simply let the clutch out. It's a gross motor skill rather than a fine motor skill of manipulating brakes with dexterity. So we swoop up the hill, we pause at the top, look left and right, clutch out, we ride down the backside, and we usually have a zone that has plenty of run out so that they can continue on without uh, any obstructions ahead of them. Can you talk about body position on the way up the hill? That's uh, a factor that we introduced back on Quadzilla, and it remains the same for the uphill and down. So, And it remains the same as for accelerating and decelerating during the braking exercises. So they would uh, lean forward slightly within the what we call cone of balance. That is the point where they're not leaning on their arms, nor are they hanging on their arms. They're simply at a balanced position as they engage the hill and feed the clutch out. Their body begins to move back towards the neutral position at the top of the hill. And then as they go down the backside of the hill, their weight moves significantly back. Their eyes remain forward so that they're they're not just seeing what is immediately in front of them, but it's off in the distance. It helps with their trajectory. It helps with their balance. And it helps with their ability to anticipate what's coming as they go down the backside of this hill. So why do we stand? Ah, I'm so glad you asked that. Exercise, oh, around four or five, I think, is uh, the precursor to enduro steering. And that's back in level one. 
and we talk about why we stand in level one, and we call it the three S's. And it remains the same for everything else that we do. Those three S's are steering. So we're beginning to use our foot pegs for steering rather than cranking the handlebars and depending on the contact patch only to deviate the direction of the motorcycle. Uh, it's very similar to leading a bicycle by the seat that you're walking beside. You're not touching the handlebars. You lean the bicycle to the right. You lean it to the left simply by maneuvering the seat of the bicycle. Well, we can press on the foot pegs, right or left foot peg, and that causes the motorcycle to lean right or left. And because of the geometry of the motorcycle, because of conicity in the tires, the cone-shapedness in the tires, whenever you've got it off on the side, that rounded uh portion of the tire, uh, the, t the motorcycle begins to turn in the direction that we're pressing with our feet. So steering is the first S. The next would be suspension. So we, we, our motorcycles, especially big adventure bikes, typically have anywhere from seven, seven and a half to maybe eight and a half or nine inches of suspension travel, significantly less than a dirt bike that might have 11 or 12 to maybe 13 or 14 inches of suspension travel. I don't know how far they go now, but noticeably more and for a lot less weight. So a 220-pound motorcycle might have 12 inches of suspension travel. A 600-pound motorcycle might have seven or seven and a half inches of suspension travel. So anything we can do to help that motorcycle is a benefit. So to add to that, the distance between our crotch and the seat might be another six, seven, eight inches up to a foot or more, depending on our, how long our legs are. So when we're standing, we're adding suspension, and it's very intelligent suspension once it's trained. And that is our ability to bend our knees, to offer damping, that is resistance to movement, uh, to our body's weight. And that's a, a drastic help to the motorcycle. So we've gone through two S, steering and suspension. As we go through that transition zone to climb the hill, we bear down. As we mentioned before, that is something we cannot do when we're seated on the motorcycle. So those are two S's. Now here we go with the third. The third would be sight. And before we actually engage the hill, we have all the students stand in a row side by side. They stand shoulder to shoulder with me. We face an obstacle in the distance. It may be near or maybe somewhat far in the distance. It could be a fence. Uh, it may be a low hill. And we all take sight on something that is beyond that obstacle. It might be a row of trees. So we kneel. And when we kneel, we pick a point on the distant object. And then as we stand, that object seems to rise as we're clearing with our eyes the near obstacle. And consequently, it's a, it's a graphic illustration of how much farther we can see whenever we're standing, whenever we have a higher point for our eyes to be mounted than if we're, sit, if we're seated. So steering, suspension, and sight are the three primary reasons that we stand. And even a dirty windshield can be an obstruction that you don't want to have, although we want our vision to be as far as is reasonable down the trail, we can sweep with our vision. We also want to know that we're missing that busted bottle in front of us or a, 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 maybe a sharp rock or whatever it might be. We might need a glance just to ensure that our trajectory is still good. And then we resume our, our distant vision. So standing, we have much more vision. 
Now, my son suggests that there's a fourth S. He says it's sexy. It's cool. It looks good when we're standing in. I think he's probably right. <laughs> okay. So um, where do we go from here? Well, we've done the uphills. We've done the downhills in the uh, kind of the swoop over the top. Uh, there, Once a student has mastered their ability to stand, to stay within the proper cone of balance for uphill and for downhill, and then to pause, look left, look right, uh, as well as looking ahead, and then do a controlled descent clutch out, then we begin to have them slow down on the downhill side. So they will go up the hill, pause, and then, and when I say pause, I we, we don't want them to put a foot down during this pause. This is a standing um, track stand, if you will, or a trail stop, as some call it. So they pause, they start down the backside of the hill, and they begin to slow their speed down as much as they reasonably can. And we ask for a progression with this, so they don't do this by just grabbing a front brake or jamming a rear brake and skidding the back tire around and possibly even high-siding, but they just go down in a controlled manner and they're often amazed at how slowly they can go down the hill. Now, this is up and down the sides of a fairly, fairly equal sides of a fairly steep hill. Now, once they've done this successfully, then we begin to introduce a turn at the top of the hill. We, we uh, position cones. We have monitors up there uh, who are ready to help them, to catch them uh, if they lose their balance so they don't step to the low side of a hill and fall. And they go up the hill. They will look left or right, whichever direction the turn is um, is suggested. And then they make the turn, and then they go down a more shallow slope of the hill. So they're turning at the top, not on, on not on the face of the hill. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So we let them swoop, make it to the top, pause, look left, look right, initiate a turn, and it's usually a fairly tight turn. And we've already been through tight turns on level ground. Uh, in level one of our training. So they are on level ground. The top of this hill is fairly flat. So they, they get to that point. They look, they make their turn. Now they're going down a more shallow slope on the, on the edge of the hill. And on that slope, we've set a series of gates or pairs of cones, green, right, red, left, just like sailors, you know, uh, running up or down a waterway. The green buoy is to the right. The red buoy is to the left on their way out. So the, the students go through these cones, and the cones are staggered, right, left, right, left. And in some, at some points, there are stop boxes, or we will ask them to pause at each pair of cones, depending on how challenging we've made it already. And so we ask the students to, to assume the proper body position, weight back, eyes forward, and then to pause for a balanced stop to make the turn from that balance stop, pause in the next balance stop position, and so on, until they've finished the hill, and then they loop back and, and start again. What does stopping do for them? Well, it creates a scenario where they can analyze or assess what's coming up. Students, uh, ultimately riders uh, who aspire to do backcountry discovery routes or other uh, popular areas or places they found on their own, uh, may find switchbacks on a trail. They could either be going up or down the switchbacks. 
And one really good example is uh, Corkscrew Gulch in uh, Colorado, another Murphy's Hogsback on uh, the White Rim Trail in Utah, uh, up north of Moab. There are some pretty nice little switchbacks there. And if you try to simply ride quickly up up or down those switchbacks, it's fairly marbly in both cases, and you can lose traction and you can fall. And often the fall is an off-camber downhill fall. If you have the ability to manage your speed on your motorcycle very slowly and to remain in balance and keep some momentum, and momentum or kinetic energy is any forward motion of a mass. So the mass of a 600-pound motorcycle with a 180, 190, 200-pound loaded rider on the back of that motorcycle is significant even at one mile per hour. It's significant relative to being stopped. So if that rider can maintain some forward motion while they're assessing and analyzing their next step, their next action, it might be to go around a rut, around a stone, uh, to turn short of a fellow rider who suddenly appeared on that around the, the, the blind part of that switchback, and they need to continue on so we don't now have two riders falling. So if they have the ability to manage that motorcycle slowly, under control, with extremely good clutch control, uh, they can make it pass. They can find an area at the top where they can put their side stand down, come back, help their buddy, or they can simply continue on to the top of the hill and take pictures of everybody else as they fall. <laughs> when it comes to climbing the hill, and we and when I asked about speed, and you're saying you know it has a lot to do with experience. You you learn how fast to go. What are we trying to attain with our speed? What's the end result we're after? So that we know if we went up the hill fast enough. Or if we went, well, I guess if we go too slow, we're not going to make it. But if we went too fast. On blind hills, ideally, you have spent your kinetic energy by the time you get to the top. You've run out. Uh, so you you make the swoop up the hill. And without applying further um, clutch throttle, which the two are married, as you know, uh, without applying further power to the rear wheel, the motorcycle simply stops or almost stops. But it's at such a state that if they need to continue forward, they can ease that clutch out just a little bit. The, the motorcycle will continue on. If they need to actually finish the stop, they simply float a foot to the ground. I mean, they're balanced. They can simply float one foot to the ground, which gives them a lot of advantage if it's a tall motorcycle or if it's a low place on the ground beside them and they can't reach the high place for whatever reason, then they're in full control. They've spent the energy when they get to the top of the hill. And if they're going too fast, it's like you said before, you, you might get to the top and realize that a dozer has taken out the other side of the hill or or whatever has happened, has washed away with the rain. I mean, there's there's so many things or another rider could be there, or some, some some sort of obstacle. That's what you find if you end up going too fast. The classic scenario is Bubba biffed, you know, Bubba's your riding buddy, and he went up the hill above you, you stop to uh, put on your gloves, here you go, and there's Bubba, just beyond your sight line. And now you have to do something besides using him for traction on the way back down. So preferably something that's an advantage to him. So your ability to float to the top of that hill and be in full control to stop, to turn, uh, renegotiate that entire process, uh, that's what a good rider does. And the more experience that you have, the more you're able to anticipate uh, what is necessary in the way of kinetic energy, body position, 
thrust, all of those things to get to the top of that hill and have spent all of your energy doing it. And the only way to get that, to actually get that so you have that down as your skill, is to try it, isn't it? I mean, there's no other way you can learn this other than doing it over and over. Well, yeah. And, you know, a lot of us began learning these skills racing. And when you race, your objective is not to have spent all of your energy. In fact, it's the co- to the contrary. Your objective is to get over that hill as fast as you possibly can, mm-hmm. get your wheels back on the ground so you're driving forward again. So it's if we learn that way, then what you commonly see when we have people coming off of uh, a, a dirt bike background, uh, especially a racing background, is they're driving a buzzsaw. And they like to go up a hill just ripping, spinning the tire up the hill. And these big motorcycles will flat cut a rut up a hill. And right near the top of the hill, they just throw the clutch the rest of the way out and throw a big rooster tail uh, as they're leaving. That's fun. It's a lot of fun to do that. It really looks cool when you do that. Uh, The challenge, though, is that the places that we ride as adventure riders, we we're ambassadors for our sport backing up a step. We're ambassadors. We really prefer to leave as little mark as we can. So if we're buzzsawing our way up and over every hill, the, the water that comes is going to begin to erode that hill. It becomes what we call a fall line trail. And it just eats it out to the point that maybe only someone on a dirt bike or maybe only someone on a quad uh, could get up that hill once we've done that multiple times. So, we're strong advocates for sustainability for our terrain, for ourselves as riders and for our machines. And we have all three of those things in mind as we're riding, then our lands stay open longer. The people who come behind us, and it may only be the next rider, they don't get caught in the mess that we made. Instead, they see nothing but what we call brownies. If you did a great job climbing the hill, you left brownies. And that is just the imprint of a knobby tire that has rolled on that ground. Hey, can you start this again? Just go step by step, um, body position, use of speed, use of clutch, um, going up the hill. All right. So we're approaching a hill. We are an experienced rider. We've just graduated from dart levels one and two, and we see a hill. We're out on a backcountry discovery route with our friends and we come up on a hill. We're actually leading this ride. And it's a fairly fairly steep hill. It might be, uh, oh, 20 feet uh, from the, the uh, transition zone where we go from the flat ground to the, to the top of the hill. So as we approach the hill, we want to approach it at a moderate speed, not a, a speed that is just it is so fast that we can't help but coast up at clutch in. So we approach it at a moderate speed. That might be a fast walk. It might be a jog. It might be a run, depending on the actual angle of that hill. And at the transition zone, we bear down, so we weight the foot pegs. We're actually trying to compress the suspension some as we simultaneously feed the clutch out so that it is engaging and we have just enough throttle on that the motorcycle begins to accelerate right there in that transition zone just a little bit. And then our body position is forward. Our eyes are looking to the top. We visualize success. We begin to climb the hill and depending on what we feel, what we sense with our, our uh, just the kinesthetics of uh, what's going on, what our, our inner ear senses, what our eyes see and what we feel in our feet and hands, we may need to feed the clutch out a little bit more with a little more throttle 
or we may begin to ease it in if we anticipate that we're doing well, we're, we're getting near the top of the hill. Once we get to the top of the hill, we should have bled most of our speed off and we can bring the clutch all the way into the handlebar. We begin to, we use both brakes in a very, very, just a gentle way because we shouldn't have to brake much and we pause looking left, looking right, looking ahead of us to determine our next course of action. That's the climb. You probably noticed that when we have rider trainers on, that there's almost always talk or, or direct reference to foot pegs and standing on your foot pegs. Well, if you've listened to them, you already know the reason you want to stand, you need to stand, you should stand in a lot of cases. Now, the question is, what are you standing on? Because your foot pegs are your levers to control your motorcycle when you're standing. Unless you have well-designed, solid, purpose-built foot pegs, then you're making the task of controlling your bike harder than it needs to be, and in some cases, impossible. IMS Products has those foot pegs that have been specifically designed for adventure riding for your bike. In fact, they've got a number of foot pegs to suit any riding style that you do, from their large ADV1 and ADV2 down to their smaller core series. They're all made in the USA, and they're all warranted for life, designed and manufactured by riders for riders. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Okay. And now imagine this. I'm going up and I start to lose traction. Maybe I'm not as an experienced rider. And I realize that I'm not going to make it to the top of this hill. What do I do then? Once you realize you're not going to make it, and this, the time that you have to react to this uh, varies a little bit depending on how steep the hill is. But if you actually are not going to make it because you began to spin, then you may pull a few other tricks out depending on how close you are at the top of the hill. This might be the time where you drop to your butt and start dog paddling <laughs> and uh, just hope that you are spinning enough dirt out of the back of that motorcycle that it uh, it gives you a, a reaction to get you to the top of the hill but chances are you're you've already bought the farm so to speak so it's time to pay up and again an experienced rider when he sees this happen then he's going to clutch it clutch that motorcycle briefly let the bike stop or bring it to a stop with the brake and then throw that clutch out instantly your clutch becomes your brake you now have your downhill wheel, which would be your back wheel in this case, acting as an anchor for you on the hill. Because you've killed the engine. You've killed the engine. And if our, our natural go-to is to squeeze that clutch to the handlebar as though we were grabbing the rung of a ladder that our foot had just slipped from. And if we're all four fingers on the clutch instead of two or three fingers on the clutch, this is what's most likely to happen. We squeeze that clutch all the way in. We hang on to it for dear life. And with our right hand, we do the same thing with our front brake, which is fine if it's a shallow slope. But if it's a slope that caused us to be in this predicament in the first place, that front brake is probably not going to hold us. And with that clutch in, there's nothing to prevent that motorcycle from going backwards very, very quickly. And that, that example you're, you're describing is keeping the engine running. People run up the hill, then they panic. They realize they're not getting to the top. They pull the clutch in. The engine's running. They put on the front brake and try and hold themselves there while they try and figure out what they're going to do. Right. 
Right. And the engine may or may not be running, probably is, if you pulled the clutch in before you stalled it. Mm -hmm. So, But it's a moot point because you're not applying any power anywhere useful. So instead, we're going to, at the point where we realize we're not going to make it, it's better if we roll to a controlled stop, dump the clutch, brake on or brake off, doesn't matter if we've come to a stop, it's going to die as long as we keep the throttle down to the idle position. So we kill it, clutch out. Now, depending on the slope of the hill, a motorcycle will probably stay right there. It should stay right there on the slope, and we begin to engage the next tool in our toolbox, that being the hill fail recovery. With the hill fail recovery, we've made our clutch our parking brake. So once we've stopped, we have entered what we call a recovery situation. And it's just like picking up your motorcycle when you drop it, getting it stuck in the mud, whatever it might be, a dead engine. If you're in a recovery situation, you always stop, open up your wallet, pull out that little gold card, and who do you call? AAA. Only the AAA that we call is in our own toolbox, in our own mental toolbox. So the first A of our AAA is to assess. When you're in a recovery situation, you first assess. So to assess, we're looking around. What just happened? How bad is it? What do I need to do? Is it all up to me or is help on the way? Is it reasonable to wait for help? What's my best course of action? So we assess our situation. And in that assessment on the side of that hill, sitting there with our clutch out in a precarious situation where the bike is trying to roll backwards or might, then we've assessed, we've decided, okay, I don't need to try and go straight back. It's 60 feet back back down this hill. I don't want to go backwards 60 feet. I'm going to turn it around and go back again. So we've assessed. Now we accept that situation. That's the second A of our AAA. We accept that. And by accepting it, we realize it's all up to us. Then we act and we put our plan that we put together during our assessment phase to use. So we decide that we're going to turn our handlebar to the left because that's where I can sweep the back wheel to my left. There's more room. There's not a rut. There's not a cliff until I get back a ways. So we turn our handlebar to the left, let's say, for example, it could be either direction depending on circumstances. And then we gently begin to ease the clutch in until we find the friction zone. At that point, we want to be very smooth with the clutch. You see this demonstrated sometimes with a very nervous hand going digital on that clutch, in and out, in and out, in and out, which upsets the motorcycle. Well, this motorcycle is like a pet rhinoceros. If we have it fairly well trained, then fine, it'll, it'll react according to our inputs and our, our coaxing and our nudging, but you don't want to slap it around. So we want to very gently ease that clutch in, let the motorcycle roll back with that handlebar turned. We're beginning to go to a side hill situation now. As we do, we predispose the motorcycle to the uphill side so that it doesn't go over the high side. When we release the clutch, the motorcycle tends to try and upright itself and fall upside down on the side of this hill. So predispose the bike towards the hill. If the hill is really, really steep, you can step off of the motorcycle to the uphill side and do this whole maneuver while, st while standing beside the motorcycle. Then if it slides, it slides beneath you rather than possibly launching you over the top. So we ease the clutch in. We let the motorcycle ease backwards just a little bit. We keep our right foot, in the case of turning left, on the foot peg. Hanging it out in the breeze doesn't help us. It actually is a counterweight trying to drag us down the hill. So we keep our foot on the hill on the on the downhill foot peg, 
the motorcycle comes side sideways to the hill, approximately 90 degrees to our, our travel up and down the hill. Then we start seesawing the handlebars left and right, just uh, enough that the front wheel begins to slip. The more we lean the bike towards the hill or the more we lean it against our knee, we can plant our left foot on the side of the hill, let the motorcycle lean against our knee, kind of pigeon-toeing our left foot against the, the, the motorcycle. We can leverage that motorcycle so that front wheel begins to move more quickly down the hill. We continue with this process, seesawing or scissoring the front wheel back and forth. The front wheel gets lower and lower until we like our trajectory to leave. Once we are confident in that trajectory to leave, then we squeeze the front brake, we pull in the clutch, start the motorcycle, and we use two methods to ensure that the motorcycle is in first gear. One method might be looking at the monitor on our instrument cluster, or it might be reaching down with a hand if we can negotiate that to, to tap down on the shifter. But by some means, we need to ensure that that motorcycle is in first gear. I recommend two means, one of the two, no matter which the first one is, being to release the clutch a little bit against the the uh, rear tire so that you feel that motor bind up a little and it doesn't pop into neutral. Sometimes we might have bumped the shifter in our backing and turning on the ground or on some brush, and we have knocked it almost into neutral, maybe enough that it hasn't put the neutral light on yet, but when we release the clutch, it pops into neutral. Now we know we're in first gear. We like our trajectory. Our right foot is on the peg. Our front wheel is pointed down the hill. We simply ride away with authority. So we deliberately ride away, but not so aggressively that we spin the rear wheel and cause it to drop below us again, creating that same scenario or worse yet, a high side. And once we're at the bottom of the hill, we reset and we start again. Now going down the hill, why do we want the engine running? Why not just go down and use our brakes? You can. You can go down and just use your brakes. And many times that's all that you need. The method that I just described is a very complete package. It's a tool that's all prepped and ready. The instruction booklet is laid out for you and it works almost every time. But there may be that time where you're in, say, some deep sand or it's a very rough or loose hill. And when you let out the clutch to go, you might be angled a little bit. You've exhausted yourself trying to turn the motorcycle around. You can't get the front wheel past this rut. You let the clutch out, and that rear wheel, as it comes up the rut, suddenly does not have enough um, momentum. It does not have enough uh, downhill force to continue and get you out of the rut. Now there you are precariously balanced, slightly angled to the side hill, and you're reaching with your right foot, in this case, to get to the ground, which is two and a half, three feet below you, and now you fall over. Whereas, if the motor was running and you rode away with authority for that initial part, you simply ride through whatever it is, you commit to that departure off of the hill, and you're done. You're down the hill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It also um, gives you a little bit more control, doesn't it, for, for engine braking, because you can use that instead of having to modulate your rear brake to achieve the same result. That would be true. On a long hill, you could simply go back to that level one downhill skill of clutch out, let the bike coast down mm-hmm. uh, with its own engine doing the braking for you. Now, how, how about the, the downhill side? Can you just walk through the same way again? Sure. So we, uh, back to the point where we climbed the hill, once we got to the top, we're in that same scenario. We're out 
on a ride. Uh, we're leading this group ride. We came to the top of the hill. We paused. We assessed at the top. Hey, looks good. The trail continues. Then we could simply uh, leave the clutch out or uh, or we could pull it in if we want to coast for more speed. But let's say we want to go down in a mildly controlled manner. We're not, you know, we're not in any hurry. Um, we want to be safe. So we just let the clutch out. We coast down the hill. Our eyes continue with the distant view. We might sweep once or Sorry, twice briefly. Billy, you said coast down the hill? Well, coast, yeah, clutch out. Clutch out, clutch engaged, out. Yeah. in gear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it is, it is, I guess, a form of coasting, but it is slightly restricted by engine braking. You can coast clutch in. There's nothing wrong with that. If you've got a completely clear run, uh, pull the clutch in, let her rip. It doesn't hurt anything to do that. So um, when it comes to braking on that hill, for instance, let's say you wanted to, let's say you wanted to stop partway down, even if it was just for, for skills practice, front brake, rear brake. Yeah. So that's the right answer. <laughs> you uh, Now, there are instructors who advocate that they do not teach a student to use the rear brake for their downhill work. And the reason for that typically is that the students will overbrake with the rear. They, the back wheel slides and tries to come around. Well, I teach both brakes from the get-go so that this is a tool they constantly have in their toolbox. They know what it feels like and they know what it sounds like when the rear wheel begins to slide. If that rear brake is only 5% of your braking, wouldn't it be sad to come up 5% short of being able to make the turn that you needed to make because you were braking? You know, you were braking down the hill because there was this turn, this ledge, whatever it might be ahead of you. It would be sad to have squandered some of your ability to brake. So I advocate using both brakes. The front brake, certainly. Uh, some people don't understand the benefit of using a front brake, even on a loose and sketchy hill. But you look for traction when you're going down a hill. You don't just ham-fistedly squeeze that front brake, hoping that it does something for you besides washing your front wheel out and letting you fall. So if you're very deliberately using the front brake with, with proper dexterity, uh, and in our level three classes, we have an area that has ledges, it has embedded rock, and then it has loose gravel and various sized stones, uh, sometimes even mud, depending on conditions. So we teach students to look for traction on the way down a hill. If that's bedrock, there might be a six inch, 12 inch, 18 inch uh, or longer section of bedrock that you're about to roll over. There is your braking zone. Both your front and your rear brakes are going to be noticeably more uh, powerful and more effective on that bedrock. And then as your front tire leads the, leaves the bedrock and comes onto, let's say, an off-camber uh, gravel slope, there you're going to hopefully have bled your speed enough that you can roll over that section, maybe even changing direction to head for another patch of bedrock. So the, you, you may break in patches down the hill. And something I want to add to downhill braking is you will seldom go slower than you go, uh, than the speed at which you crest the hill. So when you crest a hill to start down, this is another reason for up and down a hill at a measured speed, not just willy-nilly, take what comes. You may crest that hill and find that you need to go very slowly because partway down is a switchback or partway down is a fallen rider or a rut or something. So you begin to engage what I just described before, and that's to find your braking zones where you can effectively brake. 
Now, just to, to sort of um, highlight the importance of the break, if you could only have one break, somebody said, okay, Bill, you're at the top of this hill. You're only going to get either the front or the rear. Which would you choose? Excellent questions. So there, there's an argument for both. In most conditions, you'll probably just use the front. If your aim is to go slowly down the hill, you're probably just going to use the front brake and be done with it. Um, it will probably slow you enough to do what you need to do as long as this is a hill that is routinely uh, ridden up and down by motorcycles. But there is the occasion where you might need to turn a little bit more than your front contact patch is uh, conducive to allowing. If that's the case, sometimes you need to overbrake slightly with the rear in order to redirect the motorcycle. If your front wheel is rolling and your rear wheel is skidding, you're still in a controlled state. So you might be rolling down this hill. Let's say, for example, you need to turn left to uh, exit uh, an area or to avoid a boulder or something then you might want to, to brake just a little bit with that rear brake to cause the motorcycle to change direction. That's probably not going to be rear brake only. You will probably use that to some degree with the front, but it may be that you're fine rolling down the hill at some speed, and then you just need to kick the back tire around one side or the other a little bit. And you can do that rear brake only without touching a brake, front brake. I just, I just wanted to sort of highlight that front brake use because I know some people have this idea when they go down a hill that they should only use the rear brake, that you'd never touch a front brake because if you do, you're going to lose control. But we know that's not the case. Oh, in our braking exercises, we asked the students uh, to define the percentages of uh, brake effectiveness on flat ground, the ground that we have before us, which is usually either flat loamy surface or it might even be a little bit looser gravelly. And they often give those percentages at 70-30. That's a real common number to hear. And then I'll say, okay, I'll buy that. Uh, do I hear 80-30 or 80-20? Sure. And someone raises their hand, sure, I hear 80-20. So how about a 90-10? And maybe a few yeah. less people will say, yeah, I go with 90-10. How about 100 and zero? Does yeah, anybody sure. go with 100 and zero? Well, absolutely. We've all seen a stoppy. So it is constantly changing. The more you brake, the more you can when you're using the front brake. With the rear brake, the more you brake, the less you can, because as your weight is biased forward, it's it's uh, launched forward, if you will, because of the forces of braking, the deceleration forces, that lifts the rear wheel and it plants the front wheel. Now, for um, personal practice exercises, how can people go about building these skills on their own? Of course, it's the best thing to do is to go take a course with yourself or anyone else that's a high-quality instructor. But if they're going to practice on their own, how could they do that? Start small. You can start with a single hill. It can be a little bit of a hump. Uh, it, it might be two feet. It might be five or six feet. But it has a fairly gradual slope. So it may be a slope out where kids ride their bicycles in the woods and they're going up and down and you think, well, that's nothing. I'm not going to do that. But if you'll come back to the things that we discussed earlier and break the hill climb down into those elements, the approach, the transition zone, the climb itself, and then the pause at the top, then all of a sudden you made that boring hill fun. So you're bending your knees, you're, you're weighting the uh, suspension on the motorcycle, i.e. front and rear wheels, the rear wheel being the active one, so you get more traction in that transition zone. Put all these pieces together and practice on a slope that's gentle enough that the penalty for failure is low. It's the same thing for going down. First, just roll down, clutch out, 
nothing to it. After two or three passes, come back, begin to go slower and slower and slower down that hill to the point that you can actually stop. And that is by using both front and rear brakes. Try to do it without skidding the rear wheel, but sometimes do it by deliberately skidding the rear wheel and feel what happens. It may try to to turn the motorcycle. You may begin to modulate that brake and then gradually find increasingly challenging hills. If you have a quadzilla or some facsimile thereof, go out and practice the timing of the up and the down and the up and the down through all four of those hills or however many there are so that you get your body position correct, leaning forward on the uphill, back on the downhill until you've put all the pieces together and it becomes natural to you. Bill, can you, can you talk about just the, the points where, if there are some, where you and your instructors notice most often people have trouble with this exercise? Oh, yeah. Um, sometimes they fear starting in the first place, going up that hill. And when they do, we we try to show them to demonstrate the hill to them in many different ways. And we allow them to sit to, to the side and watch other students do it. And usually peer pressure and just the angst of I'm not doing this and I know I should will cause them to try it. Once they've tried it, now bear in mind, we've already been through the hill fail recovery. So we emphasize to them, look, if you get in trouble, if you don't make it over the top of the hill, just drop the clutch. That's all you need to do. And we'll be right there. And we usually will station, if we see that they're really, really afraid, we'll station someone on both sides near them. Now, there's not a guarantee that we can always catch them, but we're pretty good at it. So we're usually able to at least peel them off the bike and let the motorcycle go. That doesn't happen very often. It's happened, but it happens very infrequently. But now we, we try to give them as safe a progression as we possibly can. And the exercises prior to this have built their confidence. Our aim is to come beneath them, whatever their skill levels might be, and to have them see many victories along the way. We call it slaying dragons. If they're afraid of something and they then succeed, they've slain that dragon. And then we just remind them, look around you. You see dead dragons everywhere. So don't slip on the guts, just climb the hill. And off they go. And it, I mean, very, very few people uh, just absolutely balk or refuse to do it. Most will do it. And very, very, very few. It's very infrequent that they don't succeed because of the graduated um, degree of these exercises. We describe it as uh, the two-day course is a very tall, relatively steep ladder, but the rungs are very, very close together. We move quickly along those rungs from one to the next, but... There's time enough between those to see what you did, how you did it, and how it relates to the next exercise. So we don't just throw them in the water and say swim. <laughs> What's the skill you find uh, people have the most trouble mastering all overall? Counterbalance turns. Mm. Um, it's, and because counterbalance turns incorporates all of the mastery of body position on the bike, clutch brake throttle usage. Uh, we teach them... Uh, booty out. You know, it's like the hokey pokey, you know, your booty goes out. And uh, so it, to the outside of the turn, your belly button, your eyes, your chest all go the same direction that you're pointing your front wheel and getting over that counterbalance position, teaching them where to put their weight on the foot pegs and how to do it, I think is where we probably spend the most time and the most um, 
replays, I guess, with students to give them that that skill. Once they get that, that their confidence soars. Now, you'd mentioned when we were, we were ta- setting this up about doing off-camber with this as well. Why would we consider off-camber? Well, off-camber is one of the um, greater challenges to uh, riding any motorcycle, but especially big motorcycles, because when you when you go from a vertical axis relative to uh, to whatever the ground is, whenever you start to go at some very, very sharp angles to the ground— then slippage occurs. Um, and usually we can mitigate that by slowing down our speed. On curves, we do that by slowing down our speed so we don't have as much force on the contact patch trying to make the motorcycle slide sideways. But when we get into an off-camber environment, and this is something that we do, once we've done up and down hills and all of these other things that we've been talking about, then we do a variable terrain exercise, and it incorporates all of this, the uphills, the turns at the top, the downhills, the turns at the bottom. And then we begin to engage side hills. So those side hills are done in two ways. Uh, Well, actually three. One is just simply riding along the side of the hill. Another one is we ride up a hill part way, but then we, before finishing the climb, we turn and go back down the hill. And then another is we might be riding down a, a, a shallower slope and turning and going back up the hill. So we, we use a device, it's uh, created from a bicycle wheel, and this is a road bike wheel, so it's fairly large in diameter, 700 cc uh, or, or uh, centimeter wheel. And it is. Um, it has two axles coming out, one out each side of the center uh, from the bearings, and these are aluminum devices that I've had machined, they're knurled, and they allow us to use that wheel as a uh, demonstration tool. We'll put that wheel on a side slope. Actually, we start out on flat ground. So we roll the wheel along on flat ground. I'm holding each end of those axles with my my fingertips. And I ask the students, okay, if I want to turn right, which foot peg do I push down or which axle do I push down? Well, of course, it's the right one. That leans the wheel to the right and the, and the wheel goes that way. Now, if I'm rolling along the side of a hill, so now I engage a slope with this. The Bicycle wheel is vertical. The slope might be 30 degrees uh, slanted from bottom right to upper left. So I'm rolling this wheel along that slope. Now, what is my wheel trying to do without any inputs from me if I'm simply standing neutrally on the peg or seated? Well, the motorcycle is trying to turn and go downhill because only the left side of that tire is engaged on the hill. So it's imbalanced. It's off balance to the downhill side. The, The wheel's trying to turn down. Now, once we've demonstrated that, then I ask, okay, which foot peg do I need to push to make the motorcycle stay on the hill? Well, based on what we just discussed with that wheel rolling along a flat ground, they would say, well, the left or the uphill foot peg is the correct one to push to hold the motorcycle on the hill, which should be right. I mean, logically, that sounds like it would be correct. And that would help counter the motorcycle sliding down the hill. And if you had a soft rubber tire and a sandpaper hill, it might work just fine that way. But if you have a slippery slope and you press on that uphill foot peg, now you have just essentially pushed the bottom of that tire downhill and it will slip. So instead, you have to push the downhill foot peg. Now we've got a situation where both the hillside and our weight on the foot peg 
are trying to make that motorcycle turn downhill. So we've got a conundrum. How do we keep that motorcycle on the side hill? Now, before I go to this next step, I literally press with one finger or two, depending on my balance at this point and how steep that little hill is. I push on that downhill foot peg and I reach down with my other hand and I tap that tire downhill and it doesn't slide or it barely slides and catches again as long as I'm pressing down on that downhill foot peg. But if I press on the uphill foot peg, I don't even have to touch the tire many times. It just slips out from under you. So they've got a graphic illustration. So now one of our prior exercises was one-legged riding. We ride with one foot uh, on the foot peg and the other foot, say, for example, our left foot's on the foot peg, our right foot is hooked behind our left leg. That motorcycle is trying to turn left. It's trying to turn towards the side that, that we've weighted the foot peg. Well, the student naturally, without instruction, usually will lean into the tank in the seat area on the motorcycle so they don't end up making a big circle to the, to the side that they're standing. So I remind them of that exercise. And then they, so essentially what they do is they weight that downhill foot peg with their foot. They're pressing that foot peg. That forces the tire into the hill and their body is leaning in towards the motorcycle more, which sustains that, that movement across the side of the hill. And again, it's one of those magical things that once you learn it, you realize why Bubba went ahead of you. It didn't slide down the hill. You did exactly the same thing and you have better tires, but you did slide down there. What's he doing different? Well, he's waiting the downhill foot peg. Now you can practice this without even being on a hill. You can by standing, you know, by riding forward at a speed at which you have steerage, you're safe. And then leaning forward towards your handlebars keeping your leg relatively straight, say your right leg, for example, and sweeping that across the seat of your motorcycle and then hooking it behind your left leg, you're going to feel that tendency of the motorcycle to turn. Uh, that's one way that you can practice this. Then you could begin to weave in and out of cones. So turning in the direction of the foot peg that you're standing is very easy. The motorcycle falls that direction. Turning the other direction is more challenging for two reasons. You're opposing the weight that you have, the counterweight that you have on the, that foot peg, and psychologically, you're leaning the motorcycle in a direction that you have no foot to put down if you feel like you need to, to take a dab or to, to place a foot down to catch yourself. And this is the counterbalance that we were just talking about a minute ago mm -hmm. that, that people have trouble with. Exactly. These are some of the predecessors to counterbalance turns. Well, I, I think that's um, a lot to take in, but it's um, certainly some good information there. And I, and I think that should set somebody up for doing a little bit of practice on their own again. Obviously, the best thing to do is is head out to an instructor because nothing beats having somebody be able to watch what you're doing and, and tell you. And certainly lessen the learning curve, wouldn't it? It does. Uh, for one, we know where to put people to help monitor your safety. Um, the, the falls that can happen in off-camber turns and even in typical up and down hills uh, when you start slowing it down, where velocity is not what carries you over, but where your ability to balance this motorcycle, to manage traction, to use your clutch brake throttle in a, with, with high level of dexterity. Uh, the penalty for failure is higher when you're going very, very slow on these slopes because you can only get one foot down if that, and that's on the high side, you try to put the low side down, which often is an urge, then you can wind up with a motorcycle on top of your leg or on top of you. So uh, a good training program, and there are many, 
will have people positioned in ways that help maintain your safety uh, as you learn these skills. So you don't have those falls. Those falls kill confidence, even if they don't physically hurt you or your motorcycle, and it slows down the learning process. So we can accelerate that process significantly. Now, Bill, before I let you go, I have a question for you. Sure. Is it easier to turn left or right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, (laughs) Everybody is different. Most people, the right-hand turns, especially counterbalance turns, are more difficult. Um, But many find that the left turn is the more difficult of the two directions. So, uh, you know, some say it's because someone is right-brained or left-brained. They're more uh, more creative versus more analytical in their thinking. Some say it's because they're right-handed or left. Some because we mounted our bicycles from one side versus the other. Others will say it's because the brake is on one side and the shifter is on the other or yeah. the throttle and the clutch. All of those things. As far as counterbalance turns, you know, there's a, lot, there's a huge advantage of having the rear brake right there as opposed to not being able to reach it. That's a very practical reason for it being easier to turn left until you learn to use the front brake as well to put the bike in tension, to, op- to use a brake in, uh, in opposition to uh, your clutch throttle. Uh, so on the left turn, your toe is pointed left. Your, your right toe is pointed left, as is your left toe. So your right toe can easily reach the brake. On a right turn, in a steep counterbalance turn, your toes will be pointed into that turn, and and unless you've got a really long uh, extension on your brake pedal, it's impossible to reach that brake pedal. You would have to use your front brake. So in that case, a right turn would be more difficult than a left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, and I know we're going to get into a whole different thing if we go down this route, so we won't right now, but the whole loading up the the bike against the throttle and the clutch is something I'd love to do. And I think it's a really interesting thing. We'll have to tackle that again down the road. Absolutely. It's a, it's a, a good thing to practice. Uh, I remember it, uh, the first adventure rider challenge in 2008 at Rawhide. I was, uh, I was out there and just was something like a minute slower than everyone else through the very first element, which was a, a hay bale maze. And, uh, uh, I was even on a bike that didn't steer very tightly. And, Jim Hyde asked me then, he said, how did you do that? And I explained that, uh, that principle. And it was something that, you know, a lot of trials riders were very familiar with, but the average rider, especially racer type, was not. And uh, so it was kind of an ace in the hole there for me for a while until everybody learned it. And then it was just like everyone else. <laughs> well, Bill, that was fun. Thank you very much. Are you going to let me off the hook without asking about the weightlessness on oh, the up and downhill the, on off camera? Weightlessness, right? Do you do you, do you want to talk about that? <laughs> we can do this fairly quickly. So um, yeah, so I mentioned that there were three directions that we uh, we taught the off camera riding. One was to, to go straight across the side of the hill. The other, another was to go down the hill, turning upward, and then another was to go up the hill and then back down. So let's go with the up the hill and back down. And this is probably the greatest danger of practicing off-camber turns and uh, even sometimes up and down hills because we wind up in an off-camber environment. So with this, we, we basically just ride partway up the hill, we turn, and we ride back down the hill. It's a swoop. We're making a crescent as we go up and then back down this hill. Well, in doing that, if we go too, too fast, 
we don't make that turn. We either we continue on up the hill until we stall, then we're in a precarious situation. Or if we go too slowly, we lose our balance and our we lose our trajectory before we can make the turn. We lose steerage before we can make the turn and start back down again. So we topple over with that. Well, I teach a, a uh, I use a teaching tool. It's a kettlebell, a 35-pound kettlebell. I have a student stand in front of me or an instructor stand in front of me holding a cone, a tall 12-inch or 18-inch red cone, orange cone, uh, protruding out from about belly button height or maybe a little higher. And then I have another student student stand with that uh, kettlebell, and I instruct them to simply lift that kettlebell up and over across the top of that cone. Now, some of them get it, and they swing the kettlebell pretty hard to get it up and over. Some try to simply manhandle it, muscle it over and back down again. And I've had a few who can actually do that, pretty powerful fellas. But um, then I stand beside them. I'm not a powerful fella. And I take that same kettlebell, and I simply swing it up, reach out with my other hand, and catch it in midair. There's a hang time. There's a pause there. And I can reach up and simply grasp that cone, I mean that kettlebell, and take it back down on the other side of the cone. And I do this repeatedly, back and forth, left hand, right hand, back and forth. And there is this this very visual hang time. And so I teach the students that if you time this crescent of your side hill, you can you can achieve this hang time. And that hang time is where you make your transition from body position going up the hill to body position side hill and back to body position downhill. So they swoop up the hill. They begin to lean in towards the hill to a point that there's no thought of reaching down with the downhill foot. And then they have just enough speed to turn that handlebar and coast back down the backside of the hill. And it's beautiful. It's just, it's a, it's a tickle belly if you were doing a fast hill in a yeah. car on a motorcycle. And, and it's, and it's sort of theoretical. I mean, it's, it's like the, the bike is not leaving the ground at this point. It's just the suspension is relaxed and it's weightless. Bingo. If you were, if you did apply scales to that suspension, to the springs on the suspension, you would see those scales go from a, uh, a higher loading to a near zero loading. That was Bill Dragoo from Dart in Norman, Oklahoma. You can find out more about what they do at BillDragoo.com. And of course, we've got that link in the show notes, along with some photos from Bill that illustrate some of what we've talked about today on our Rider Skills segment. You can do, uh, you can see that stuff by dropping by AdventureRiderRadio.com and look at the show notes for this episode. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps
wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. Hey, if you know somebody else that might like what you're listening to here on Adventure Rider Radio, we'd love it if you would share it. And also, if you haven't done it already, if you could go wherever you're finding your podcast and give us a five-star rating, that would help others find the show as well. We'd really appreciate that. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin, and I will talk to you next week. This is Dr. Gregory W. Frazier, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 